encourage you to turn to Isaiah 53. In your Bibles, Isaiah 53. <clears throat> the night on which Jesus was born was a night of joy and a night of triumph. The long-awaited Messiah had come. Thousands of years of prophetic anticipation had been fulfilled. And in keeping with that occasion, an angel declared to these startled shepherds, Do not fear, I bring you good news of great joy. Great joy. This was not a maverick angel making up a message on the fly, no pun intended. This was not uh, an angel who was confused, who rejoiced when he should have wept. This angel was an ambassador sent from the presence of God. He was a herald entrusted with a message from God. Dispatched from the glorious throne room of his sovereign Lord, this angel sped on his winged flight to proclaim a divine message, a message of joy and a message of delight. The shepherds certainly got that message, didn't they? People don't hurry off to funerals. They don't run away to divorce court. They drag their feet People hurry off to things that excite them. They hurry off to parties and to ball games and activities and things that they just can't wait to see. It was a night of triumphant joy and the heavens pulsated with the joyous strains of the angelic choirs. But cast across the manger in which the swaddled Messiah lay nestled that night was, as it were, the unmistakable shadow of a Roman executioner's cross. The father rejoiced and sent his angels to share his joy the night Christ was born. Messiah had come. But I imagine the father's joy was a serious joy, tethered as it was in his own heart to the grave realization that Messiah had come to earth to fulfill a harrowing mission. The Son, His Messiah, this Emmanuel, had come as the final sacrificial lamb to bear the sins of the world. This was not, as the critics are wont to say, an idea that Christ's disciples came up with sometime after His death. For centuries, for centuries, Messiah had been prophesied to Israel as a sin-bearer, as a sacrificial victim who would bear the sins of others and die to secure their forgiveness. The most specific statement is found in the prophecy of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, having prophesied some of the characteristics of Messiah's life and ministry, the prophet turns at verse 4 to a consideration of Messiah's death. Isaiah 53 and verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. The Old Testament saints did not know precisely who Messiah would be. But what they knew as we gather together the information from this passage is at least three facts. First of all, Messiah would submit to a violent and unjust death. Secondly, God would place on him our sins. He would die as a sacrificial substitute. Thirdly, his death would secure for his people the forgiveness of their sins and peace with God. But please understand, these concepts were not only declared in Isaiah 53 and in parts in other prophecies. These ideas were demonstrated and promoted in Israel's sacrificial system. Isaiah's prophecy concerning the suffering of Messiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born. It's an amazing thought when you consider the precision of this prophecy. And following the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity, sacrifices had been offered on the altar at Jerusalem since 516 B.C. This means, if we put this together, that Joseph and Mary, as they strode through the temple area with the six-week-old Jesus, that the Jews had been carefully, meticulously observing the sacrificial laws of Moses for over 500 years. And what that means is that for 500 consecutive years, the Jews had been confronted day after day after day with dramatic, visible preparation for Messiah's sacrifice. Not that most Jews paid a whole lot of attention to it. The Jews generally made a point of ignoring the prophetic messages regarding Messiah's suffering. Just as is true in our own day, the presence of God and the Word of God was everywhere present. Everyone could see it, but no one cared to listen. The Jews awaited a reigning Messiah, the Jews of Jesus' day in particular. They looked for a conqueror to free them from Rome. A modern Moses, they hoped, would come. A Moses that would deliver them from their political slavery to Rome. So even though the prophets declared it, there was little place in the Jewish mindset of that day for a Messiah who would suffer as a sacrificial victim. But he would nonetheless. That's why he came to earth. And the sacrificial system prescribed in the Mosaic Law provided a powerful illustration of Messiah's work as the final sacrificial lamb. So let's step back there for a few moments together this morning, back to 4 B.C. Having come to Jerusalem from nearby Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph trudge across the vast courts of the temple complex with the infant Jesus in arms. They've come to monetarily redeem Jesus and to offer sacrifices for Mary's ritual purification. They were part of the system. They were obedient Jews, and they honored the system. They'd come to do this work, to honor this system, intentionally designed by God to elucidate, to make clear the sacrificial work of the Messiah whom they carried in their arms. 
sacrificial system of Israel was very complex, and much of it misses us. But if we could step back into that time, we can see, first of all, let me just say a couple of things by way of preliminary observation. There's a lot about the specifics of the system that's not even made clear in Torah, in the law of Moses. The biblical record at places is tantalizingly incomplete. What is more surprising is that the symbolism of the sacrificial system is never explicitly discussed in Torah. God says, do this, and He never really explains why. There's been many years of my life that have passed, and I keep saying I need to understand the sacrificial system better. I need to understand the imagery better. And I keep thinking that this is a weakness in my understanding of the Old Testament, but as you pour over the pages of the Old Testament time after time after time, the picture's missing largely. It's not all explained to us. It's cloudy. And perhaps God intended this silence to invite the worshipers to meditate upon the meaning of these sacrifices. He also apparently desired to slowly reveal their symbolic meaning at later revelation, as later revelation pointed to the Messiah, such as here in Isaiah 53. What is very clear to us, what was very clear to every Jew, was the location of sacrifice. The temple at Jerusalem was the place for sacrificial offering. And it was to be the only place. The temple was seen as the center of the world for the Jews. And there is good reason to believe this is exactly how God wanted them to see it. Everything was focused on the temple at Jerusalem. History reveals that outside of Palestine, this was also seen to be the case. Not every Jew was able to come to the temple to worship. But as synagogues rose up throughout the world, it appears that they purposefully oriented their worship to correspond to what was happening at the temple. So for instance, when they, they, they would pray at the same time that the priests would be praying as uh, sacrificial animals were being offered, they would go through many of the same rituals. And so from a distance even, they were participating in what was going on at the temple site. It was the center of their world. And it was, at that time, the center of God's attention on earth. There were many types of sacrifices that were offered. In general terms, every offering was a food offering. But there were live offerings of oxen, lamb, goats, pigeons, and doves. And there were inanimate offerings of stocks of grain or grain cakes, oil, wine, and most everything was salted as a symbol of being, uh, uh, honoring the covenant. Salt being a symbol of covenants being established. So almost everything was salted on the altar. The Torah is a bit nebulous as to how many kinds of offerings there were. And as I pieced this together from various scholars, they had differing opinions as to which ones fit together under the same heading. It doesn't make a lot of difference to us as such, but just think about this. And this is what I want to present to you this morning, is the number of sacrifices. There were burnt offerings. There were peace offerings or fellowship offerings. There were sin offerings, reparation offerings. That is, if you uh, were in trouble with another individual or, you, for instance, you stole something from them or you broke a contract, you would come to the temple and offer a reparation offering. There were grain offerings, first fruits. So at times of harvest, uh, worshipers would come in and lay down the first offering of their harvest 
There was the firstborn sacrifice, which is why Jesus and Mary come to the temple area when Jesus is six weeks old, to offer that kind of offering. There were wave offerings and heave offerings and tithes, and there were uh, purification rituals such as Mary is undertaking at this time. Some of these offerings, such as the peace offering, if we could boil it down into two basic ideas, some were intended to express the ongoing communion between God and the worshipers. They were a type of devoted celebration. You would come to the temple area and bring your lamb, for instance, as a peace offering, and you would share with the priest that meal, and you would be saying thereby visibly that I am in relationship with God. I love the Lord, and I give this offering freely as I relate to Him and honor Him. There were other sacrifices illustrated by the sin offering, which provided atonement for sin. That is, they removed the guilt and restored the worshiper to a right relationship with God after an act of disobedience. Now, all of these offerings came with layers upon layers of ritual. That's why it's so difficult for us to read through the Torah, to read through the, the Mosaic Law, and to get any real sense of what the rules were. Because they weren't all put together in nice, neat packaging in the writings of Moses, but they're scattered throughout, that God's people would be forced, in a sense, to go to the Word and to comb it and to find these rules and regulations. And of course, by the time of Jesus, many new ideas had been added, many further regulations had been added by the Jews. But each one came, even from the divine throne, with precise rules and guidelines. Sometimes the whole offering was to be consumed. Sometimes portions were given to the priests. Sometimes both the priest and the person offering the sacrifice would share portions of the meat in a fellowship meal. Think of uh, Hannah and Elkanah giving uh, Hannah as uh, Elkanah as he gives portions and gives a, uh, extra portions to Hannah, his wife. There's a family they're coming for a fellowship offering a peace offering offered to the Lord and sharing that meal together. There were many specific rules as to what parts of the animal's body was to be burned and what was to be saved or discarded. We could really get lost in all the details of these various sacrifices, but what I think is more important today is for us to consider the process for sacrificing. The process. The sacrificial system of the Mosaic Law purposefully assaulted the senses. It was bigger than life. You smelled it. You tasted it. You felt it. You heard it going on all around you anytime you were at the temple. It was a noisy undertaking. The temple courts could have seemed almost like a barn at times. Bleeding sheep and mooing oxen and goats and pigeons and doves. Everywhere sacrificial animals making their presence known. And everywhere there was slaughter. The system made it a very hands-on type of slaughter. The worshiper would bring his animal to be slaughtered. As the animal was about to be sacrificed, the worshiper was required to place his hands on the animal to identify with it. In Christ's day, it appears that the worshipers leaned over a short wall that separated the court of the men from the court of the priests. They would lean over that short wall and they would place their body weight upon that animal as it shook in the throes of death as its jugular was sliced. That warm, pungent blood flowing into the bowls. You couldn't miss it. When a bowl was full, depending on the sacrifice, the blood was thrown up against the base of the altar or poured out there 
Some sacrifices included sprinkling blood on the horns of the altar or before the curtain in the temple or on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But primarily what you saw, what you smelled, what you visually took in were bowls of blood being poured at the base of the altar as representative of the life of the animal poured out before God. Massive amounts of blood shed daily in the temple courts. The hides of the animals were stripped off of their carcasses. Bodies were slit open. Fat and internal organs were removed and burned. The heads of birds were wrung. Their bodies split open. And many times these offerings lifted in the air to God. Everywhere, blood and slaughter. Blood and slaughter. And everywhere the smell. Not only the dung and the blood and the sweat and the wool and the feathers, but the burning meat on the altar. As the smoke ascended, the smell of grilled meat filled the temple courts. You couldn't miss it. And the pure number of sacrifices had to be overwhelming. A staggering number of sacrifices offered in Israel's worship. People could, often, could offer a sacrifice whenever they chose to offer a sacrifice. There were time limits, of course, within a particular day. But in that day, they could come and say, I want to offer a, a, a lamb. And the priest would be obligated to offer that sacrifice, compelled to do so. But along with these spontaneous offerings of the people, God prescribed daily sacrifices. The sacrificial day began and ended with an obligatory year-old lamb being offered, a lamb without defect, offered by the priest, Exodus 29 so the priests offered two lambs every day for the nation. In addition, on the Sabbath day, two year old lambs, two one year old lambs, followed the morning sacrifice along with wine and grain offerings offered on behalf of the nation. Then there was the new moon sacrifices. There again were further sacrifices. And then there were the three major festivals. So every single day, the ritual starts with the sacrifice of a lamb. And every single day the ritual ends with the sacrifice of a lamb. But then there's every Sabbath, there's every new moon, and the three major festivals with their own specific sacrificial requirements. The priests served only two weeks out of the year there at the temple within their various orders. They would serve two full weeks, but every priest assembled for the three major holidays. Why is that? They needed them. They needed their uh, efforts so great were the requirements on the three major festivals that every priest came to serve, everyone capable of doing so. Let me stop just for a moment at Passover as an illustration of this powerful message that was sent in such tremendous volume of, sa of sacrifices and evidence of the magnitude of the sacrifice. Every family or group of no less than ten men were to be represented by one man who came to the temple courts at Passover to sacrifice the lamb for his group, however many that was. Every lamb during Passover was sacrificed from 4 to 6 p.m. Think about that. That's a two-hour window. 
the participants were divided into three massive groups and serviced in order. This was a tremendous problem in the right to get everybody in. So at, at the time of Christ, they came to the idea of dividing into three massive groups. So the temple courts would open up, they would fill with people, they would leave, the next group, they would leave, the next group, and in those two hours they sought to service everyone. Priests lined up in rows with silver and golden basins to catch the blood of the lambs whose jugular veins were slit by the representative of the group. So one man would, would represent his family or his group and go in, take this lamb, and kill this lamb. <coughs> there was so much blood, so many bowls, that the priest would stand in long lines and pass the bowl from one to the next, full of blood, and pour it down at the base of the altar. Other priests sliced open the lambs and pulled out the fat and internal organs for burning and then handed the carcass to the representative. When the first group was done, the second group followed by the third. There are estimates that in Jesus' time, 300,000 people celebrated Passover in the city of Jerusalem. That means roughly 30,000 lambs were slaughtered in two hours. Now put yourself there in that complex, 30,000 sheep killed in two hours. And this did not include the, sacrifice, the sacrifices of the travelers who had come earlier in that day to bring their free will offerings to the Lord, their tithes, whatever it was, they come at that time and offer those sacrifices. It's at 4 to 6 o'clock that everything stops and everyone needs to get, have their lamb for the Passover meal. And now on top of that, just the fact that it was Passover, God stipulated that there would be two young bulls sacrificed by the priest, one ram, seven male lambs, and one male goat added to the regular daily sacrifice of the priest. And if it fell on a Sabbath even more and on a new moon even more, you might think if you're a priest to say, listen, God, we've got enough to do here. Why all these others? This was obviously no small undertaking. Vast amounts of wood were needed to burn the sacrifices with great pomp. Donations of wood were stacked in the chamber of wood at the northeast corner of the court of women. A great volume of water was also needed for washing the temple courtyard of blood and for purging the laver which was used for washing. Remember that big basin that sat out there in front and the priests would wash their bloody hands. What a, all of that blood and to do this, a wheeled mechanism brought water up from below the floor of the temple. There was an elaborate aqueduct system that brought water from as far away as Solomon's pools, 12 miles away. It was pumped toward the temple area. It was brought up through this mechanism to purge out the water in that laver. The vast amounts of blood that were poured out at the base of the altar descended through two drains down through the floor. And mixed with the water, they flowed down to the brook Cadrone. And the resulting blood products were collected by entrepreneurs who sold it to farmers as fertilizer. What a system. We take a little shot into the future and we see what a dramatic thing that Jesus very probably crossed over that Cadrone brook as it flowed with the blood of the sacrificial lambs. In all of this, God stipulated that the altar's embers would never burn out. 
According to Leviticus 6 and verse 12, the altar was to burn perpetually, smoldering through the night and continuing to consume carcasses now for 500 years. The altar burned. It was, not in the worst sense of the word, but it was in a true sense an assault on the senses. Sacrificial animals everywhere. Blood and guts all over the temple area. There was obviously a point to all of this. As we put it all together, we note several characteristics of the system. Before we even bring it to Christ, we look at a few characteristics. First of all, sacrifices were always offered to God at cost to the individual. What were the animals that were offered? All of them were animals that were used for food. There were domesticated types of animals, and the birds as well could be. Sacrifice. Matter of fact, there's a guy over here that's got pigeons that he sends around town and they come back to him. I mean, even pigeons can be domesticated. These animals could be used. And so when they were sacrificed, the person giving the animal was giving up something on which they could have lived. They always cost. Number one, secondly, sacrifices were offered in the way that God prescribed. Thirdly, and by the way, let me <coughs> just interject that through the Babylonian captivity as the Jews came back, they never messed around with that anymore. They certainly had before the, uh, Solomon's temple fell to the Babylonians, but never afterward. They stuck with the ritual. They did it the way that God laid out to do it. Thirdly, they were offered through a mediator, a priest. Number four, they were sacrificed with a sense of substitution. The animal took the, the sacrificer's place either the person or the nation, and was offered in their place to God. Fellowship offerings represented the giving of one's life to God in devotion as they identified with that sacrificial lamb. Sin offerings indicated the transfer of sin to the animal, a giving of one's life to God as judge. This idea of substitution is best seen in the practice of laying hands upon the animal I'd like you to look at Leviticus 16, if you'll turn there. Leviticus 16 and verse 20, where we see it very clearly described. Leviticus 16 and verse 20. We find ourselves here on the Day of Atonement, <coughs> very solemn ritual for the Israelite nation. Leviticus 16 and verse 20. We just note this idea. When Aaron... Leviticus 16.20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands, both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He will put the sins of the nation on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed to the task. The goat will carry on itself. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. And the man shall release it into the desert. We see there the placing of hands upon the head as a transfer of the sins of the nation. And this was to take place of the general populace as well. Back to verse, uh, chapter 1 of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 2. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 2. The Lord calling here to Moses and speaking to him about the ritual says in verse 2, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. 
if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the tent, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Now notice verse 4. He is to lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf and make atonement for him. So they place their hands on the head of the burnt offering. In Christ's day, as I mentioned, men leaned over a low wall separating the court of the priests from the court of the women. And the women and the children would stand in the court of the women, which was outside that court and could observe this process as their representative came and leaned his hands, placing his hands on the head of the victim. And as the worshiper leaned his body weighed upon that victim, there was a physical sensation of transference. It's clear to us that in Jesus' day, the Jewish sacrifice teemed with this imagery. The Jewish world teemed with sacrificial imagery. It was everywhere. You could not miss it. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. I've tried to just take us in a little window into the context of Jesus' day. This identification with the sacrificial lambs, this slaughter, this idea of the victim dying and the forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of the victim. Let's read it again. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Recalling Daniel's prophecy that he was cut off. Who can speak of his descendants? He had no children. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. We don't even need to turn there, but you remember what John the Baptist said as he saw Jesus come, presenting himself as the Messiah. What did he say? It was read earlier this morning to us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need to see John saying that, making that remarkable comment with the idea that not very far away there stood a temple on a hill where sacrifices were being made. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, not only the sin of the individual who brought the sacrifice, but the sin of the world. 
the final sacrifice. As we consider this work of Christ, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'd like to read a few verses from here as we prepare to come before the Lord's table this morning. As we consider Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, the one sent from God to bear our sins, think in the context of sacrifice of the meaning (coughs) of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the things, of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If we read that from a Jewish context, we say year after year, and month after month, and week after week, and day after day after day. If, verse 2, it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty. That's a poor translation there, but would no longer have been guilty for their sins. Not a matter of feeling it necessarily, it's a matter that it rests upon our heads. They wouldn't have been guilty any longer if the sacrifices had accomplished anything. One thing a Jew could see was that this sacrificial system was ongoing. At Jesus' time, it had been 500 years, the altar had never burned out, as far as we know. That had been the command of God, and sacrifices day after bloody day were constantly offered for the forgiveness of sins, but they obviously were not sufficient. Because, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I think a Jewish observer, a worshiper, sacrificing an animal, would need to come to that place. That there is covering for sin. There is forgiveness before God. But this sacrificial system itself is incomplete. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. I'm here, says Christ. It is written about Me in the scroll, I have come to do Your will, O God. These sacrifices that could never take away sins, Jesus stands up in their presence before the Lord, as it were, and says, here am I. Take me. I've come to do your will, O God. Psalm 40. Verse 8, first he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. What is the point of that? God did require these sacrifices. But these sacrifices never satisfied the heart of God because they could never take away sin. They were a reflection, a shadow of what was to come. God had no particular care for the sacrifice of these animals. He was simply making a statement. He was pointing ahead. Then he said, verse 9, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets, that is, Messiah sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. And we, I read these verses so often when we come to the Lord's table because they so powerfully communicate what we are doing as we gather here to remember the Lord's death. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I appreciate that translation there. I think it's accurate of the, of the Greek. Those who are being made holy. We are not perfect in the sense of completed holiness, but we are being made holy as the work of redemption continues. We are saved once and for all, but our salvation is yet in process. We are being delivered from this vile world by the work that Jesus Christ accomplished. He is referred to as the propitiation of our sins in Romans 3.25. The propitiation, the satisfaction of God's anger. The Lamb of God, pierced as a sheep, slaughtered, taking on the sins of the world and making Hebrews 10 the last sacrifice. And so we shift the image from Jesus as infant at the temple to a scene just outside the temple courts. Three crosses stand on a wind-swept hill and the Son of Man dies. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, pays the penalty of it. Is there any wonder that there was darkness at the height of day? Is there any wonder that there was an earthquake? It is as if the rocks themselves could not keep quiet as they announced that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had died. Is it any wonder that the curtain of the temple was shred from top to bottom by the divine hand? And is it any wonder that the last words of Jesus included, it is finished? The Lamb of God, bearing our sins, died as a sacrificial lamb. And we invite to this table those who have come to saving faith in that message. We do not invite to this table those who think that by taking these elements you will somehow add to your salvation. Or if you have any notion that these elements are the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, 
but we invite to this table those who understand the message that Jesus has been crucified and rose from the dead as the sacrificial Lamb of God to take away your sins. And you have come to identify with him in believer's baptism, to visibly state that you belong to him. We invite you to this table. And I invite you at this time, in a similar vein with God's people in the past, to share this meal with the Lord's people here as a communion. A sacrifice has been made, and a meal is now shared in the presence of God with His people to say that we walk in fellowship with God, with one another, as His people. I invite you in that spirit to this table.